Hello and welcome to the five things this week in social. You know, every week we deep dive into five topics around the world of social media so that you can stay up to date and you can get back to planning your outfit or your makeup for the big emo concert in Vegas later this year. So who's your favorite 2000s emo band? Tommy Boyce? I am to this day a diehard Paramore fan. I love them. I, yeah, just, I mean, it's just the classics and the fact that they're still good like a decade later. Mwah, chef's kiss. So good. Amanda Davis is here. Who's your favorite 2000s emo band? I feel like I have a very millennial answer compared to Tommy's Gen Z answer. And mine is Thursday from that lineup. I would love to see Thursday. I wish that Me Without You was on the lineup. Um, also a banger band. Thursday and their scream out, like that is so classic. I think I'm going to go even more old school than you. Um, my favorite band from that lineup is Jimmy Eat World. Uh, I'm Joey Scarillo, and here is everything you need to know this week. All right, first up, Tommy dives into Meta, who are developing an ethical framework for the use of virtual influencers. Then Amanda breaks down Microsoft's purchase of Activision Blizzard for $70 billion. Uh, Tommy talks Twitter, uh, who published a new guide on what consumers expect from brands. Then Amanda stays with Twitter and tells us how they are testing new column creation tools for TweetDeck. And finally, Tommy shares insights from Pinterest on how men use the shopping platform. All right, let's get into it. Tommy, tell us about this ethical framework that Meta is developing. Yeah, so with the rise of digital avatars and fully digital characters that have evolved into genuine social media influencers, um, online platforms are talking about how they have an obligation to establish clear markers as to what's real and what's not and how these creations can be used in their apps. And the coming metaverse uh, shift will really kind of jumble this all up with the rise of you know virtual reality and AR and all those buzzwords. Meta is now working to establish ethical boundaries, we love Meta being ethical, on their application. They explained that, and I quote, from synthesized versions of real people to wholly invented virtual influencers or VIs, synthetic media is a rising phenomenon. Meta platforms are home to more than 200 VIs with 30 verified VI accounts hosted on Instagram. These VIs boast huge follower accounts, collaborate with some of the world's biggest brands, fundraise for organizations like The Who, and champion social causes like Black Lives Matter. Becky Owens, head of creator innovation and solutions at Meta Creative Shop, said that we can't just wait to see what happens in the space. By identifying the potential pitfalls and opportunities that lie ahead, we will help our brand partners and VI creators explore what's possible, likely and desirable, and what's not. Now, VIs are potentially a great opportunity for brands as they can be, you know, utilized 24-7 and can be placed into any environment. I mean, they're fully not real people, so you can do whatever you want with them. But that also leads to concerns about, you know, body image perception, deep fakes, and other forms of misuse through false or unclear representation. Deep fake technologies have come very far. There are several viral examples of the technology. And it's not hard to imagine a scenario where deep fakes could be used to, say, you know, show a politician saying or doing something that he or she actually did it, which could have significant real-world impacts. Because of this, it makes total sense for Meta to enact clear regulations to remove dishonest depictions 
and enforce transparency over VI use. But the funny thing is, my first thought was, most of what you see on Instagram isn't real either, or on Facebook, or just from influencers in general. Filters and editing tools altering people's appearances are part of the norm for social media. And we've seen how these standards can have damaging consequences for the mental health of audiences. And while Meta is looking to implement rules on VI use, there's arguably a case for similar transparency and editing tools applied to posted videos and images as well, unless I'm like going way too far with this. And that's a complex element. And I can see how Meta adding similar guidelines would actually cause engagement to decrease for a lot of users. But it all falls under the conversation of digital transparency, which will only continue to grow as we've seen from the last year. And this issue is certainly not going away anytime soon. That This is... There are so many things you just said that I don't think I ever heard of before. So this was very, very fascinating to me. I'm curious, Amanda, what do you think of this move for Meta? So I am kind of in the same camp as Tommy. I think, you know, this ethical framework coming from Meta slash Facebook slash Instagram, you would have to be a little bit skeptical to see how deep this is going to be built out and how much of a focus this is. Two things I wanted to call out that Tommy mentioned that are worth kind of double clicking on is one, the idea of synthetic media. We talked about it a little bit, I think, on five things during the election specifically and understanding how is content media, whether that's an influencer or social post being created and being fabricated from something that might not be real. And Tommy mentioned a couple of examples. But I think, you know, Facebook is up against the context that they've had not managing synthetic media in more recent years. So it is nice to see them and hear them specifically say that they're getting ahead of that conversation. I think that's a large conversation happening with metaverse technology. And the second part is about transparency. And I think it was Spain that recently made a law that you had to make a note if you edited your photo on social media or if it was Photoshop, for instance. And that kind of transparency is important, not just for virtual influencers or synthetic media, but also just in all metaverse technology. I think when we start to think of metaverse platforms, the question comes up of why would someone use a metaverse platform versus an existing digital and social platform? What makes all of those very different? And metaverse platforms truly should be built on a couple of pillars, including transparency, autonomy, ownership, decentralization, some of the things that we've been talking about from a Web3 perspective. So a company like Meta needs to take transparency more seriously than what we would consider a social platform like Facebook or Instagram, or else they won't see adoption. They won't see users, you know, spending time on the platform or trusting the platform. So from Meta into the metaverse, let's talk about Microsoft. Amanda, tell us about their recent uh, purchase of Activision Blizzard for an enormous sum of money. So this, I think, was a very exciting news story because, you know, just for some context, a lot of people were keeping an eye on Microsoft and understanding, you know, where were they making investments as you saw Facebook and you see, you know, Roblox and a lot of other gaming slash tech companies investing in metaverse technology. Microsoft had been a little bit hush about it. Last year, they acquired Bethesda, which is a gaming publisher. But other than that, didn't really talk about what they were looking into. To me, it came as a bit of a surprise update. Um, It's exciting. Activision is a company that has had some struggles internally, especially over the last year. They've had a lot of conversations around their internal work culture. So I think it's exciting to see a brand, a company like Microsoft, take ownership over this, start to figure out how do you take a company that is making good games like Call of Duty, like Warcraft, like Diablo, there's tons, and make sure that it's growing in the right way with the right values in mind. 
I think Microsoft could be one to lead them in the right direction. But the other part that makes this interesting is with this acquisition, this makes Microsoft the third largest gaming company by revenue. That's a pretty big deal. They, I think they have, and I hope this is correct, or we will correct ourselves in the next episode. I think they have about 24 studios now, gaming studios, making games. So they're a bit of a quiet, slow player, you know, gaining their space in the gaming world. Microsoft is a sleeper. I mean, we always think of Microsoft as Teams and Outlook, but they also own LinkedIn. And and you, I'd never think of them, but when it comes to Xbox, but it's true, they they own Xbox too. So I'm curious, Amanda, why is this such a massive deal? And what does it say for the future of the metaverse? So it's important to note that when we talk about the metaverse, this does include what we would consider strictly gaming platforms and gaming titles. I think what's really interesting about this is you think about Microsoft's Xbox Game Pass, which has grown to be a huge entity with 25 million subscribers. When you think about that access and that audience already built into this acquisition and understanding our Activision games going to be automatically shared with these Game Pass holders, that's where you start to see something kind of interesting of trends in games, games taking off overnight. Obviously, a lot some of these titles we've heard of just because the playership is really high. But this also opens the door for emerging titles, for casual titles, for people to get into gaming if they have a Game Pass, which is not that much of a monthly subscription rate. It's almost like connecting a Netflix to a cable provider. You all of a sudden have this built-in audience that you can tap into, which which may impact the way that they develop games. Tommy, is there um, is there room for brands to benefit from a deal like this? I think so. I think you talk about how Microsoft has slowly been making in-grounds on a lot of different platforms. I actually didn't know that they purchased LinkedIn, which I guess is a testament to Microsoft's you know act of just slowly cultivating, slowly gaining mass in this kind of space. But I think when you look at this, I mean, this is just a massive... I think I saw this as the largest acquisition in the history of gaming, which, hey, when it's $70 billion, I mean, that makes sense. But I think the way to Microsoft behind all these platforms and with Game Pass, I think you already look at how brands are utilizing Roblox and how uh, in games like Fortnite. So I think through Microsoft's sheer weight being thrown behind all these soon to be you know, newly developed or made games from their studios, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities for brands to kind of insert themselves. I was going to say subtly, maybe not so subtly, but in a way that feels organic and hopefully attracts new audiences and makes people kind of think about them in a different light. Sticking with brands, um, let's jump over to Twitter, who published new guides on what consumers can expect from brands. And Tommy has that. Yeah, so Twitter's published a new report which looks at how brands can maximize their success on the platform based on evolving consumer trends and expectations in the app. Called hashtag real talk, the guide is the result of analyzing a decade worth of brand tweets and user tweets about brands, along with numerous consumer surveys. In order to get a real view of what works in modern Twitter marketing and what Twitter users both respond to and expect. Now, there's a lot of information to take in. The report is 50 pages long, but hey, we read it so you don't have to. So some of the major takeaways are things like people are actively engaging in the conversation with branded content because brands, they reportedly say, add to the enjoyment of Twitter. Seven out of 10 people surveyed agree that brand Twitter is one of their favorite parts of Twitter, which to me is a surprisingly, it's such a surprising fact. I did not expect that. Six out of 10 people surveyed say that brands should acknowledge moments of crisis in their advertising and communications when they are occurring. Eight out of 10 people expect brands to evolve their tones with the times. 
people today don't really want brands that rely solely on being funny or staying in their same lane. They want them to show a sort of growth or development in their tone of voice. And even more specific, Twitter also outlines the kind of events that people want to see brands tweet about or not tweet about. Um, so basically, no one cares about you know your brand's opinion on euphoria, no matter how much you relate to Lexi as a person. Just kind of let that space belong to the users. And the report also raises a large problem with this, um, with branded tweets, though, and the fact that years of best practice guides and tips have now led to a new issue, which is that brand profiles on Twitter start to sound the same. And that's not overly surprising, you know, considering best practice guides that we all follow go down to tips like the amount of hashtags to include, ideal character length, or tweet timing. And this discounts uniqueness and variation over, in favor, rather, of staying safe. When everyone follows the same playbook, we all sound the same and muddle together. The solution then um, is in knowing your target audience and what they expect. That's the main advice of the report. General advice can be helpful, but you need to stick with your brand messaging and voice to truly win out. Don't just figure out how you, you communicate, but why you communicate. So I'm curious. I mean, you mentioned a lot of things that all these brands are doing. It's almost like everybody read the same data and said, oh, these are the right things to do. Amanda, what can brands do to stand out these days on Twitter? Yeah, I think this report, the very, very, very simplified recap is also, especially Twitter users, appreciate brands that feel human and that evolve and that have nuance and that have, you know, a perspective and an individuality. We think about advertising. It's fairly new that brands have been able to have one direct interaction with consumers and two, a more nuanced personality where they're constantly putting out, especially when you think about Twitter, opinions, thoughts, you know, perspectives on something versus what would have been considered the history of advertising before that. So we're still in a pretty new world where consumers are excited to hear from brands, like especially if a brand has an opinion or a thought or something interesting to add to the conversation. To Tommy's point, brand Twitter is exciting for them still. So I think the main takeaway that that I've gathered from this research is you can act like a human, you can have opinions and evolve and have values that you speak to. And when it comes to things like playbooks and tones, super helpful to stay on track with what your brand is, but also feel free to revisit and revise and grow. And maybe, you know, a playbook that you wrote five years ago, take another look at it, see if it's still relevant and valid, or if there's anything you want to change or update based on the brand or the context of culture. Yeah. Speaking of Twitter and brands on Twitter, let's talk about Twitter testing out new column creation for TweetDeck. I think this is probably good news for brands and community managers. Amanda? This is good news. Um, so very simply, Twitter's content manager is called TweetDeck. Um, if you're not familiar, which a lot of people should be, they released some new processes to users, which are designed to make the functionality a little bit more seamless for brands and for creators specifically. So they've redesigned the format with larger extended columns. So it's a little bit easier to create your content. They've changed the logistics and the functionality for search columns, as well as the list discovery options in the platform. So all encompassing, the big takeaway here is that Twitter is investing in their content manager product. Um, I'm sure at this point they are well aware of the landscape of content managers that are available, but also are to the conversation that we just had. 
more brands using Twitter than likely there has been before. And they want to make sure that this is still a place that's accessible, that's easy to use, that's easy to manage your content and can kind of keep everything in one place. It's exciting, especially if you use TweetDeck as a content manager, a community manager. But it's also a testament to Twitter investing in its not only its content creators, but brands on the platform. Tommy, do you have any insight on this one? As someone who uh, does act as community manager, this would be lovely um, to use because it is hard having the search, you know, like name searching on Twitter is always a little bit embarrassing. Um, and I think streamlining the process would just make jobs a lot easier and also make it more it gives you more opportunity to actually engage in the space and have fun with it as opposed to just like scrolling through mindless things that don't actually add to the value that you could offer with your platform. So I think it's just a great tool to help people, you know, interact on the app and actually do their jobs. I think, again, what Amanda said, it just really shows how Twitter is trying to listen to their users and make the app as functional as possible. So I think this is great news. Yeah. All right. Let's jump over to Pinterest now. Um, Tommy, tell us about the insights that they shared about men shopping on their platform. Yeah, I'm just, I'm full of insights today. Um, so Pinterest's audience is primarily female, but according to a new report published by the platform, male usage on the site is steadily growing and they project men to spend more than ever before during 2022. According to the report, male pinners, I guess it's what you call people on Pinterest, are looking to make big plans in 2022 and get back to their life goals after the disruption of the pandemic. And while that all sounds just like, you know, normal New Year's resolutions, they did back this up with interesting data. The report said that 55% of male users are looking to go to the movies more often. 55% of male users are also looking to go to restaurants more often. 50% are looking to host house parties in 2022. 60 are looking to have new activities to do with their families. And 30% of male pinners are looking to buy a new car. There's some interesting and potentially valuable opportunities within this data, which could help to align brands' Pinterest marketing if they're looking to connect with men in the app. Most importantly, perhaps, is that Pinterest says that 75% of male pinners are looking to spend more money to reach their goals this year. They also highlighted three tips to help people on the platform make the most of their marketing towards men specifically. First, Male users are highly brand conscious and will pay more for the brands that they know and trust. Two, men conduct fewer searches before making a purchase and are keen to get to the point faster in the process, underlying the need to reach them early in their shopping journey. And three, given this, Pinterest personalization in its search results is a key benefit for male pinners, with 85% of male users noting that the platform feels personalized to them. So this is a lot of stats, but what it shows overall is that there is an untapped audience on Pinterest. And given the success it has had in the overall social shopping space, the fact that men are looking to spend more money than ever will be very good news to a lot of brands out there. Yeah. So, Tommy, in your opinion, is Pinterest a place more brands should be engaging with? I think so. It's funny before I started really getting into the nitty gritty of Pinterest or Ooh. the nitty gritty. That was bad. Keep it. Okay. <laughs> the nitty gritty. Let's keep it. Keep it. <laughs> I'm really surprised by the success that the app or the platform has had. I mean, there are some real numbers behind its shopping success. And I think that people kind of overlook it as a platform. Most see it as like, oh, people planning, you know, for rooms and aesthetic and thing like that. But people use it for planning life milestones and for planning, you know, um, just sort of everyday events and parts of the consumer journey. So I think there's a lot of untapped potential 
on Pinterest, especially as they're getting more into live stream shopping and getting into the shopping space in general, that I think it's going to be a really important place for brands to be a part of in the future. Amanda, what type of brands would you like to see more of on Pinterest? Or do you think have an opportunity? Um, I think I'm going to give you maybe an unsatisfying answer in that I think a lot of different kinds of brands <laughs> should be on the space more. And I'll tell you why that's my answer, because I think that to Tommy's point, Pinterest is in a unique position as a platform where they get to be a bit of a social share platform. They also get to be an inspiration platform. So when people just kind of want to be entertained by ideas and visuals, but they also are a search platform. And I think that that is an often overlooked part of the Pinterest channel in that, you know, when you think about purchasing decisions, if people don't know what they want to purchase, for instance, you mentioned cars, Tommy, if someone knows that they want a pickup truck, for instance, but they don't really know what kind, they very well might start at Pinterest, browse through some aspirational, you know, brands and product options, and then land on what they do want to invest in. So I think the the search aspect of Pinterest is is wildly an open opportunity for brands in every single vertical, whether that's food and beverage, cosmetics, CPG, auto, whatever that may be. And I know that's not a great answer to your question, Joey, but I, I think that that functionality is very, very important to brands understanding how they show up. No, I think that was a great answer. Well, thank you both for all your great insights today. If you don't already, be sure to follow us on Apple and Spotify and share this with a friend. Go on Twitter and be like, hey, you know what? You should listen to this and send them a link and send them a DM and just like pass it around, you know? If you've got questions, concerns, points of interest, complaints, be sure to email them over to us at podcast at gray.com. Write us on any of our social platforms. I'm sure somebody will write you back. I want to thank Amanda and Tommy for joining us and Danielle behind the scenes and the crew over at Gramercy Park Studios. Thank you. See you next week. And in the meantime, be social. The Five Things are written and researched by the Social and Connections team at Gray New York. Produced by Joey Scarillo and Danielle Hunt. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Guy Rosemarin and Amanda Fuentes. With post-production support from Ned Martin. Additional support by John Jenkinson, Christina Hyde, and Liz McGovern. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.